And good afternoon, happy Thursday, and welcome back to the wonderful latest episode of the Daring Live. Thanks for joining us, as always. Um, I am excited today. Dave, are you excited? I'm very excited. Yeah, absolutely. This is we've been trying to get the uh, this this next set of guests on for quite some time. You can see them down there on the screen. Uh, a power couple, I think, in the world of bluegrass. Um, <laughs> Terry Bockham. <laughs> Uh, one of the most respected musicians in bluegrass and, and in banjo, uh, a complete master of his craft. Uh, and the man we all know is the Duke of Derive. He has played with countless acts over the years and was a founding member of the Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, which was actually formed, uh, am I correct in saying, 42 years ago this April. Is that right? That is right, 1979, yes. 1979, wow. Uh, and of course, Terry is joined by his beautiful wife, Cindy, uh, arguably as well-known in the bluegrass world. She's an award-winning broadcaster, producer, promoter, uh, and a longtime host of the Knee Deep in Bluegrass radio show. Guys, please welcome Cindy and Terry Bockham. Guys, how are you doing? We are great. great. Thank you so much. And I think we're even more excited than you are. We've been looking forward to getting to chat with you. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could finally make it happen. I think we tried uh, we tried to do this before Christmas, actually, at one point, and uh, we finally managed to get it in the book. So thanks for joining us and, and, and spending time with us this afternoon. And uh, I think in true fashion, uh, during live, why don't we kick off with a little tune? You seem to be ready as if we staged this whole thing. You look that? like, <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me set up your mic here, and then we're going to let you take it away. Sounds good. We'll start with a little bit of Shenandoah Breakdown. sounded fantastic i mean right off the cuff there just hearing that kickoff uh by you terry i mean y'all didn't count it in or anything just <laughs> I, I, I started just let her come in when she wants to really <laughs> uh, that's why i get along so well because around the house you know he'll say grab your bass i'm gonna hit the banjo and um <laughs> we we enjoy picking together every chance we get that's great. You're lucky to have each other to be able to play together like that. Absolutely. So, so Terry, last October, you you uh, released a new album, Find Time to Get the Blues. Is that right? Yes, it is. We got in the studio uh, about a year ago. I guess it was. And yeah. uh, started laying down tunes. And, uh, you know, it just things went smoothly in there. We went in thinking we was going to cut just a couple to use for singles, you know, for the radios. And it kept going so smooth. And we didn't really have any shows at that time anyway. So uh, it kind of fit right with what we were doing. And we already had all the songs we were going to cut. So it was a real smooth operation, really. I enjoyed doing that. And uh, it seemed to be doing pretty well on a few charts. So uh, we're happy that... Uh, people like our music enough to play it so we're very thankful for that yeah 2020 was a good time to go into the studio to get that cut with uh no shows happening live but uh felt like fine time to get the blues was pretty much the anthem for 2020 for a lot of folks yeah you could say that again it's definitely apropos that the, the title of the, the recording um and then this is is this your fifth um um release as a band leader yeah fifth recording it sure is uh the first two i used a lot of different people this kind of like a friends thing had all kind of people on there and uh let's see the, the next three was with the dukes of drive so 
two solos and three uh, band, band projects. Yeah. Band things, so. Yeah, and, you know, I don't even know the total number of recordings he's on as a sideman, but uh, as a solo artist or band leader, five in the last 10 years. Wow, that's a, that's a good amount of work to get out there. And sure. how, do you go, how do you go about song selection when you're, when you're um, you know, starting a project like this? Well, that, that's the first thing we do is start looking for songs a year ahead of time so that we can start, you know, putting them all together, saying, will this work, will this work, whatever. And uh, you put a lot of time in it then. The easy part's going in the studio and playing, but listening to all these other songs and stuff. And we got some really good writers. Ed Williams out in Texas, uh, Mylon Miller, Tom Mutes. There's so many people. And once you have, you know, a couple songs off it hit the charts, then a lot of people start sending you stuff. And that's mm -hmm. when the work really begins because you keep listening and listening. And after a while, everything sounds good. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> But we, uh, you know, we, we enjoy being in the studio. It's time where you can sit down and play in there and you, and you can hear everything so well. It is just a very cool thing. I've always enjoyed going in there. Do you approach your playing differently in the, when you're playing in the studio versus playing live? Yeah, uh, you on stage, we play a lot harder. You know, like Bear Down. In there, you don't want to quite sound like that, but it's hard to get that on stage sound in the studio. So mm -hmm. you got a studio gear and you got, you got a band gear on the stage, you know, so but we, uh, after you do a couple of them, you, uh, you pretty much understand where everybody's at, you know, and we got a really good engineer, West Easter down in Cana, Virginia, and that's not far from where we live. So we enjoy going in and doing that. It's really, uh, it's good. He's a professional. Hopefully we are too. So we get in there and get down, you know. The banjo is on all your recordings is so crisp and just pops right out. Is there, um, is there a certain mic setup that you like to use when you're in the studio? I pretty much use it as it is. And uh, Wes has got some really old vintage mics, all kind of really cool mics. And he puts two on my banjo and he knows exactly what I'm looking for. So he can, I don't even have to tell him what, how I want it because he knows how I want it, you know. And then then with my banjo, I've been playing the Deering here, uh, started in 2008. So it'll be 12 years this uh, October. Actually, September. Uh, September. Yeah, yeah, it'll be 12 years September. So I know what my banjo can do, and my banjo knows what I can do, so we get along pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and talking about your banjo, um, your signature model, it's it's a walnut neck banjo. Have you always played walnut banjos, or is it, was that a change for you when you when you got that, well, that model? I've always been a big lover of uh, mahogany banjos. I've got some mahoganies, you know, that I really enjoy. But I I found that the uh, walnut gives you a little more bite, a little more growl to it. And uh, when Janet and I were talking, she said, what kind of wood you want? I said, I want to go with walnut. So Greg, he had this beautiful walnut wood. And he said, I'll make you a good banjo. And it didn't take long. And then we was at IBMA one year when it was in Nashville. And he brought it to me, and it sounded just as good then as it does right now. So, I mean, it it, it holds it holds it together very well. I, I enjoy playing it. <laughs> that's great. Is there any? What else? Is there anything specific that's unique about your your banjo? Yeah, it's instead of a hard rock maple wood rim, it's got a red maple. Now, Jens was telling me about this. He had studied that, and he said it's lighter but it sounds just as good, but it's lighter. So, and the tone ring of it is six ounces lighter than their standard tone ring. And then the way they cut the neck back in there and set it in the banjo, I can have guitar, 
uh, electric guitar action if I want it, or we can raise it up or whatever, but it's no problem. And that's a really important thing for me because I like an 11-16th bridge. And uh, it's just a good combination, the uh, walnut. And, you know, a lot of people would think that might be a little bit harsh sounding or whatever, but it's really smooth. Maple is a little bit harsh until it gets some age on it. But once you get the age over, it really sweetens up. So, And the walnut's the very same thing. So, yeah, if I had the choice of one wood, I would go walnut. I'm a fan of the walnut banjos too. My personal banjo is a walnut banjo. You kind of get a, the, the best of both of, of the mahogany exactly. sweetness and the brightness of the maple. Exactly. You can do whatever you want to with it. That's, that's the way mm -hmm. I like Yeah. Yeah. Well, going back, you know, into your history for both of you, both of you um, came from musical families and have, have been surrounded by music your whole life. Um, how important do you think it was to have that music around you and how important do you think it is for, for um, young people today to have music around them and to start playing music when they're young? I think it's most important to be around it because when you're young and listening, you don't really know what you like. So if your dad, you know, like Cindy's dad, my dad, my dad had a band and so did Cindy's and, uh, you know, it, it was just great going to these big fiddlers conventions and seeing people enter. And as we got older, we started entering, you know, the competition. And uh, I can't say for sure, but if my dad hadn't taken me around bluegrass, I might have got around some other kind of music that I would have liked as well. But like I say, at that time when you're small, you don't you don't really know how good you're going to like a certain music until it grabs you. And, and like we'd be at the festival, there'd be huge crowds and everything. And I'm so happy that he did take it or take us to it. You know, I, and now I would stand back when I was just starting and see these really good banjo players, you know, and, and study them as they played, you know, and the way they moved around and stuff. It was uh, it's quite an experience. And I'm, I'm really glad that I went through that experience. Yeah, music is so important. Um, like you said, for young people to listen to a lot of things, to experiment with some instruments and and see if your talent's there, see if your passion's there. But we were raised with such similar backgrounds and we often compare stories. Um, we were both born and raised in North Carolina but uh, with both our dads playing music and my dad also built instruments and just being able to form friendships with other musicians that are still with us today. Some of the people that Terry picked with as a teenager, he's still friends with today and same for me. And um, just really love having that, that grounding. I mean, banjo has been so much a part of my life. Uh, with my dad playing banjo. I'm married to a banjo player. My son Houston is a banjo player and, and plays a, a Deering Eagle too. So yeah, the banjo is very important. Music's very important. And I can't imagine life without music or, you know, without having that commonality between us. Yeah. Um, and, and you played you with know, your father when you... Go ahead, Terry. I was saying my mother didn't like it quite as good as my father. I, he could be in the house and I could sit there and play all day and he would love it. My mother would eventually say, you need to take that thing out of here. That thing was my brother. <laughs> so when she said that, house, you know? uh, But she's his biggest fan now. Oh, One at a, at a festival. Uh, she's nearly 95, but uh, she is... I'd say next to me, your biggest fan. <laughs> what was it, Terry, that um, when you were young that really made you want to play the banjo? Was it, I read, I think it was the Beverly Hillbillies that theme song that you listened to? Beverly Hillbillies. I was about uh, 10 years old when that come on and it was wildly popular. You know, and when it first come on, it was like, Earl's banjo sound like a machine gun. You know, pow, 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 you know, and 
it just took me, and I told Dad right then, I said, I need me a banjo for Christmas. And that year I got it at 10, and that's when I started. And uh, there and, again, if I heard Earl do that, you know, I might not have liked it as well. But, man, when I heard that, it just took me. And there are a lot of banjo players like that. I heard Bela said that was a big influence on him. I mm-hmm. know other guys that heard it and said, man, that kills me. So they are a, a certain group out there that got the same thing in the ear, you know, and loved it. So definitely, there's so many banjos around. And how did you how did you learn? Because your was your father a claw hammer? He was an old time player, or was he? A, did he play three finger? Banjo player, you know, he had okay. to drop down in there, and he could play a few tunes. He didn't know all that many, but what he played, he played well. But my dad played guitar. And he said, well, we'll figure out some kind of roll. So we got a roll, and it was all backwards, and it led to nowhere. Like you just <laughs> I said, that's the wrong roll. And I had a cousin that lived across the river at another county over there, and he was a really good scrubs player. And he played with Monroe for a little while. And uh, he stopped by the house one day. I said, Bill, listen to this. He said, oh, man, you are messed up. And he uh, sat down and showed us the forward row, which is like. Uh and he would uh, sit there saying, I'll do it. And he said, let's work it into a song. And that got me going. And it was like turning the light switch on. And then I started learning and hearing stuff and trying to do more like Earl and everything. So, uh, he really uh, helped me out a lot. I told him, I said, that, uh, we did a, uh, a news thing on uh, Banjo News. And uh, I gave him full credit for getting me started with the right role. So all mm-hmm. you young guys out there, if you ain't going nowhere, check your role out. Get somebody that knows what they're doing. And <laughs> y'all see you on stage somewhere, man. Yeah, it's a lot easier to learn correctly than to break old bad habits. That's for sure. That's definitely true. It's hard to hard to unlock those those, those you know those mistakes that you can build into your playing. Mm-hmm. And and you played as a as a child too, Cindy. What were you, what did you play? Well, I actually started uh, with piano. That was, okay. that was my first instrument at eight years old. And then by the time I was in grade school, I played in the school band. Uh, so saxophone was my next instrument yeah. and um, would always go with dad to the festivals and fillers conventions. And I loved bluegrass. I loved the Osborne brothers when I was a little girl. Um, and so when I was in about the eighth grade, I told dad I would really like to start learning guitar. And he said, well, I'll show you a few chords. And he said, but really, he said, I need a bass player. And so he borrowed a bass, an upright bass from a friend of his to see if it was going to be something that I had interest in and wanted to play. And when he brought this bass home, it had catgut strings that were unraveling. And to play this bass, which I did for hours, it would just tear my fingers up. And dad said, if you enjoy playing that bass, I'm going to find you a good bass. We're going to get a good set of strings on there. And uh, so I showed him right away that I was dedicated. But uh, I love playing upright bass and, and, and especially with Terry um, to get to, uh, you know, um, get to do that around the house with his kind of driving banjo. It's it's just fun. Mm hmm. And and Terry, when you were learning, did you learn most besides that that one cousin that straightened you out? Was there um, was the did you learn mostly by ear? Yeah, mostly by ear. Sure did. And what did you slow down records, or did you do that thing? Yeah, or you know the big record and uh, yeah, it would change the key of the song. You know, and you try uh-huh. to figure thing out. Earl's playing your old Dixie and G, and you trying to figure it out. E or F or wherever it <laughs> took it, you know. So uh, we didn't have the tools that kids have got today. There's so much they can work with. 
Right. And uh, I'm glad they got that kind of stuff because you can learn so much on there. And, you know, like people say, do you do tab? I really don't do tab. I figure that if you do tab, just do it enough to learn the song and put the tab away and really work on uh, the sound of it on your banjo. So, yeah, strictly by ear, Cindy reads very well, plays piano. And we've been aiming for years for her to teach me to read music. <laughs> we've been busy. What can I say? And then, you know, watch the other players, too. You know, when you would oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. watch other players and get them to show you a lick from time to time. Yeah. And and I know my dad told me as he was learning, um, he would go walk to theaters in town when Flatt and Scruggs came through or Bill Monroe and um, he would just watch very closely and try to remember as much as he could when he got back home after those shows. And um, so, like Terry said, kids these days are really fortunate to have all the learning tools that they do, tutorials online, being able to watch a solo over and over. So um, it, it's really great when a young player will take advantage of all that's out there for them. Yeah. Talking about young players, I see there's a question from a young player here in the chat, Jameson Smith. He uh, says, I'm a 12-year-old banjo picker in training. Could you give me some tips on how to play the more traditional banjo style um, more than modern day bluegrass, I think is what we're saying. Well, I myself am a melody player. Like I like to kick a song off and you know what it is. So go with the go with the melody of the song. And if you don't know the melody, get get a guitar player that can sing and 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 sing the first verse or the chorus and however you want to kick this thing off. And then you work on you just make it say what the lead singer's doing because if you're going to play, play melody, you got to know the song. You either have, you can whistle it, hum it, or sing it. But until you uh, really work with a good singer, if you have one, is the best way I know to get that. Uh, and there's certain licks, you know, that you can do in different kinds of music, but the banjo will fit on a lot of different things. So, but, you know, if you want to do traditional, and listen to the traditional players like Scrubs, Bill Emerson, Crow. And when they kick something off, if they just took, for instance, one tier, when they go into it, as soon as you hear it, you know what it is. And, and that's, that's the way you, uh, that's the way you deal with that. And you have such, you know, you're known for your, for your, your, you know, you are the Duke of drive and you're known for your, how strong your rhythm is and how strong your drive is. How did you perfect that? Um, as you're as you're learning to play, well, I know Terry's told me in the past. Uh, for instance, with Boone Creek, their bass player had played rock and roll bass, Tommy Huff. Yeah. Um, and 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 he said, being a banjo player with a bass guitar player who was used to that kind of driving rock and roll sound really helped him to develop his style um, because even though folks like J.D. Crow and Bill Emerson and Sonny Osborne are very driving banjo players, um, I think Terry's drive is is different from theirs. It's distinct. And and I, I think you credit the, the great, Electric bass players you've played yeah, with over the years. I do, and good guitar players. I've been fortunate to play with Clay Jones, Jimmy Haley, you know, Wes Golden. I mean, just some really good players. And, you know, you really need a good guitar player. Earl had Lester, and I don't think Earl would have been as good if he had not had Lester, you know. Earl gets a lot of credit, and I want him to have it all, but Flat needs some, too, because as soon as Earl kick it off, Lester would be on him, man. And and that's what makes good drive is when you've got somebody doing it. And when I was with Boone Creek, I, I still played fiddle some then. And I'd go in and set him a crow and play fiddle with him, but I was trying to, you know, help 
Boone Creek gets started with the band. So I'd stand there on the fiddle and watch Crow. <laughs> and I would really watch how he was doing things. And I learned a lot from just hanging out with Crow. So if you can get with somebody like that, that's, that's a good way to go, a good way to learn. And it will help you with your drive. Okay, Jamie's going to jump in here. Oh, you're muted, Jamie. We can't hear you. There we go. Here we go. Dave's going to jump off real quick to uh, resolve a technical issue on his end. So I'm going to I'm going to carry on the proceedings. Dave, I'll see you in a few minutes, my friend. Okay. Take him out. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. Thank you for your patience. But, uh, but um, so I guess following on from that, you mentioned uh, Boone Creek. Um, such a great band. And, and you were all pretty young at the time as well. But how did that come about? What was the story there uh, with Boone Creek? Well, at the time, I, you know, I said I was playing fiddle. I was working with Charlie Moore playing fiddle with him. And yeah. uh, at the time, Keith and Ricky was with, uh, with Stanley and Ralph. And uh, we played a lot of the same shows, you know, festivals, theaters, fire halls for the, you know, raising money for the, fire department, that kind of thing. So we got to talking one day, let's let's get a band together when we all leave this. And, you know, it was about that time Skaggs left. He called me and then, you know, Keith was going to be the lead singer, but Keith kind of got cold feet. He didn't want to leave Ralph because he's the lead singer with, with Ralph. So, uh, you, you know the story. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Cindy. <laughs> well, I, and, I, and I always love to hear him tell these stories. And see, that's the cool thing about being so passionate about the music myself. It's like I do love to get the history and, and, and learn and hear. And and I still will learn things. I'll ask him a question. Something will occur to me. And uh, it, it's fun to get the, the history firsthand. But. Mark Pruitt, uh, another phenomenal banjo player, he was slated to be the banjo player with Boone Creek, and Terry was going to play fiddle. And um, Mark and his brother had just opened a music store in Asheville, North Carolina. And, and Lou Reed, he was going to be the bass player. Yeah, huh? so uh, Boone Creek could have been a, a whole totally different combination of players. But as it worked out, Terry told Ricky, he said, I can play banjo until you find a banjo player. And I found this out from Ricky when I interviewed him one time for my radio show. He said, after he played one show on banjo, he said, I told Balk, we have our banjo player. I can switch to fiddle sometimes. You can switch to fiddle sometimes, but you're the banjo player. And I think things happen the way they're supposed to eventually. You might have to go, you know, around a corner to get there. But uh, but it's no telling if, uh, if it hadn't have wound up with that combination of players, um, you know, what might have happened and how everybody's career course could have gone in different directions. But I think it, it wound up being uh, as it should in the end. It was sure. fun. We had a good time. And I hate that uh, we only got two recordings, but I'm glad to have those two. So, yeah. Deal. One on <laughs> Rounder Records. The first one on Rounder Records um, has never been released digitally. It's... Uh, an LP, and uh, there's been talk for years about releasing it digitally, and um, I think recently they've uncovered some uh, recordings that were still in the can, um, never heard before. I think about six cuts, so who yeah. knows? Somewhere in the future, uh, those might uh, emerge, and then, of course, on Sugar Hill Records, uh, One Way Track was the very first uh, Sugar Hill release when it became a label out of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, the one-way track album by Boone Creek was the very first number in the catalog. Wow, that's exciting news though, about the about the uncovered recordings and and the, the possibility of that being really uh, really digitally. It's a uh, the stark reality is that I think most people are consuming music that way as well these days. So it's awesome, and and you know. To, to to Terry's credit and to you guys' credit, your latest album is available on, on every major streaming platform uh, that we can get. So kudos to them. Move where people are going. So uh, Dave is back, I think. Nodding. Here he is. 
<laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> we play to our strengths here on Doing Live. Dave is a better interviewer. I'm better in the back end. So back to you, Dave. <laughs> hey, um, so then moving from Boone Creek to the, the formation of the Quicksilver Band that, you know, we've, we said at the top of the show, you know, we're celebrating the celebrated 42 years um, recently. Um, I was reading about what's really interesting is how how y'all got formed about the, the rehearsal schedule y'all had. Um, was so you rehearsed for a few months all day long? Is, is that all true? You had Sundays off. So you'd go from like 10 to 10, you know, break for, for supper and stuff like that, you know. But, man, we got... I've never played that much music in my life, you know, every day like that. And it kept on going. And he said, well, let's just keep doing all day, every day until we do the first set at wherever, you know, our first booking would be. And I think it was Buddy's Barbecue in Knoxville. Is that correct? That was certainly among the first. Anyway, man, when we walked in front of the crowd and, they said to kick it off. We were like a machine. It was like, man, I've not heard anything like this lately, or maybe ever. But uh, <laughs> I hadn't. You know, I'm playing for Boone Creek was a good builder for me to go from there. And, you know, Doyle was wanting to leave a gentleman. He had a lot of ideals that he wanted to do, and a lot of things like that. And, you know, and Lou played electric bass in the original band with Doyle, and he played a whole lot like uh, Steve Bright did in Boone Creek and among other players there. And, uh, Jimmy Haley, he was taking really good guitar breaks and everything, and it just so happened we had a good quartet. We worked hard on that quartet stuff. Tell them that story, too, how those quartets became so tight. What is it? About practicing going into the opposite Yeah, we, we lived in a big old farmhouse, and it had like four or five different bedrooms. And we'd start playing a song in the living room, and everybody would walk playing and go in, in his own room. And then you'd play there a little while, and then you'd come back out and go to the living room. And if anybody was out of time or, <laughs> you know, to kick off or... If you did anything wrong, everybody had to do it again. And I'm glad yeah. we did that because it, it was so cool to not have to worry about going on stage because we were really polished at that time. And I, it, it was a great feeling to walk on stage every time with those guys. Wow, that's a, that's amazing. I mean, uh, it's, almost, it's almost like the Rocky Balboa training method. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like running up the stairs. Yeah, nobody wanted to be the guy that caused you to have to do it all again. <laughs> I taught you how to really listen carefully. I mean, you don't even hear yourself breathe. I said, I don't want to be the one to do this. So you know, you don't breathe. You just go. <laughs> <laughs> That dedication is so admirable, though. At the same time, I, I love, I love that. I love hearing that sort of story and that sort of passion and dedication. Um, you know, it's easy to put a foot, a, a one toe, in being dedicated, and then kind of say that's enough. But yeah. to really follow through like you did is, well, you is, know, is young kids. You know, with bands have asked me, how, how can we get better? What what can we do? I said, man, you need to rehearse. I mean, you need to rehearse, you get together and practice, just really practice, you know, and uh, I've seen some of them that's grown up now and they're good pickers and everything, and they, one kid said, man, it hasn't been for you telling me to practice all the time. He said, that's all I do is play. I said, that's what I did. You're on the right track, man, to keep it up, you know, <laughs> and they make good pickers, man. You know, I guess yeah. they just haven't figured out how to rehearse yet, you know. Yeah, and you've got to you've got to truly practice. You cannot just play songs. You you, you got to work on what what you yeah. can't do. Exactly. How did you logistically ever manage to with that with the band rehearsing every day for a few for a couple months? Just how did you logistically manage to pull that off? How did you feed yourselves and and things like that? 
Well, we, like I say, we lived in a big old farmhouse and Doyle just lived right. You could see his house from the road. So we were all at the same place. And like I say, we we usually get started around 10 and work really hard till noon or one. Then we'd go out and eat. We'd come back and we'd really hit it hard from then on for the next few hours, you know. And uh, like I say, you, you had Sundays off and, uh, and that was that was fun to get away from it for 24 hours because after a while, man, you know, you kind of get, let's work up something new. I'm getting tired of some of these songs. You know? <laughs> so we, that's how we kept bringing in new stuff. And, and Doyle started bringing in more of the uh, Golden Gate Quartet kind of things, you know, gospel stuff. And back then I smoked like a freight train and my voice was low very low, and I could sing the bass parts and everything. I have since quit smoking 20 years ago, and I can't sing bass anymore. <laughs> He's a great singer, though. So my bass vocal is gone, <laughs> but my um, desire for cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I told him I'd rather have a healthy baritone singer than a smoking bass singer, so there you go. <laughs> but it didn't affect the banjo playing at all, so that's the good thing. Yeah, it didn't bother. It wasn't bad. <laughs> Uh, well, would y'all like to play another tune? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Get the bass here. Let's see. I think this is going to be one of Terry's originals. Um, and it became the title track to the release he did in 2011 called In a Groove. And that In a Groove project was the first recording to feature the Deering Terry Baca model. So um, this is that, uh, that title track called In a Groove. Fantastic. Again, you know, it's just, it just hits you like it almost sounds cliche, but just hits you like a ton of bricks, right? Right. When you kick it off and you're playing just that dedication, you know, that you spent practicing all, all, all that time with bands and then by yourself just clearly pops out instantly. Well, you know, with, with COVID knocked a bunch of shows out and everything and it's beginning to open up some. We got we got one coming up in a couple of weeks down in Denton, North Carolina. And uh, you know, usually we play not every weekend with my band, but we play quite a few shows, you know, and uh, it's uh, it's hard to keep your edge and your chops up when you're just sitting around, you know, watching TV and stuff. So I went back to the old style. I started playing two or three hours a day. Sometimes I'd play all day, and I didn't know I could still do that until I tried it. <laughs> but it worked. I wouldn't want to do it every day, all day. But you know, so I, I really worked on that. And uh, then, I, then you get used to sitting there playing. So when you go on stage, you have to stand up, then. And <laughs> so I had to mm -hmm. work standing up playing. You know, that kind of <laughs> thing. You know? but it's awful. All fun, you know. I love banjo, and uh, been turn on playing as long as I can. So, yeah, and Terry's been, you know, one of those guys that since he graduated from high school has made his living as a musician, um, a touring musician, um, a banjo teacher, um, doing some instructional materials, and you know, um, a lot of young people have asked him in workshops before, you know. 
how can I make a living doing music and only music and especially bluegrass? And one thing that we always try to emphasize is finding those different revenue streams. Um, put all those things together and you can make it work like that because Terry has since 1970. And by finding different revenue streams and not relying on just what you make touring, just what you make recording. He was also very smart over the years, um, investing uh, what he was making and putting the correct things in place in terms of royalties that are still paying off today from work he did years ago. So, you know, you can make it work if you're smart about it and dedicated to it. My, got a, my older sister was a banker, so that don't hurt either. Yeah, she gave good <laughs> advice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, that helps. <laughs> what can we do here? Yeah, so, it uh, paid off. Been very fortunate. Yeah. I'm thankful. And and Cindy, I mean, you also are very dedicated in your in your radio show as well. Um, you've been doing your radio show Knee Deep in Bluegrass. You've been doing it for you're over nine hundred and twenty five shows, I believe. Now, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the show that I produced this week and distributed to more than one hundred network affiliates was show number nine hundred and twenty nine. Wow! And um, so I've been. I've still got a little bit of time, but I've been thinking about what I could do really special for show 1000. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to do something live um, and really celebrate show number 1000. That's going to hit in about uh, September next year. Um uh, but yeah, I love it. I started in my uh, hometown of West Jefferson, North Carolina, um, a station WKSK. And at 17, my after school job was hosting and producing a radio show called uh, The Bluegrass Spectacular. And even back in the early 80s, I found some old playlists and I was playing the original Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver and Boone Creek. And, and I was like, well, I had very good taste in music even as a, as a teenager. But I do love radio. And it was always something in the back of my mind that I would like to get on more stations. Because the reason I started in the first place was to share my passion of bluegrass music. And I thought, well, no better way to do that than to get behind a microphone picking out what I feel like are the best songs by the top players. And I didn't get the opportunity for syndication until 20 years later. But I feel like when that opportunity came about, um, I was ready for it at that time after being on local radio stations for 20 years. So now for the past 18 years, um, since 03, uh, the show has been in national syndication, and I do Knee Deep in Bluegrass. I have another program, Knee Deep in Bluegrass Gospel, and uh, between the two shows have over 100 network affiliates across the United States. Wow. Wow. Very that's, that's great. It's a great show, and uh, kind of thinking, going back to the kind of the business of music for bands and musicians, um, what, what are you looking, when you're deciding to, pl what, to play something on your show, what are you looking for? And also for up and coming bands, what advice would you give them for uh, trying to get their music played on radio? Yeah, well, if you look at any genre of music, you can't imagine that a rock band might just practice in their garage, go into the studio for six hours, record a few songs, take it to an FM station and say, okay, we've recorded a CD. We're ready to go on the air. They had to pay their dues. They had a certain bar they were trying to play um, up to that level so that they would um, get the recognition. And it's the same for bluegrass bands. I see so many bands that after their first project, it's almost like they feel like I'm obligated to play it because I have a radio show and they've recorded it. But to get to your question, the things that I look for, first of all, um, quality of the production, 
quality of the performance. Um, I don't normally do themed shows as far as that goes, as far as titles. But if it's a good song, if it's performed well, and if the production quality is there, then um, it does make the show. But I, I have two hours a week nationally to showcase what I feel like is the best and what I'm trying to get listeners to be attracted to. So I do set the bar high. Um, you know, if somebody's scanning the radio dial at any moment during the show and they land on it, I want it to be something that makes them want to continue to listen. So it's all about quality. Yeah, production and performance quality. And how do you think we can, you know, talking about bluegrass music in general and expanding the audience, how do you think we can expand the audience for bluegrass music, but still maintain a high level of musicianship and keep it true to the tradition, not just not just open it up to anything with the banjo in it? Well, well one thing that I have um, been really happy to see when you have players with notoriety, if they um, are, are known by the masses and they're interested in banjo, uh, Steve Martin's a good example. He's been such an ambassador for the banjo, for the music. And then if some of his fans get interested in the banjo because they've heard him play something, then they might hear Graham Sharp and the Steve Canyon Rangers because they first listened to Steve Martin, well, then they might dig back further and find influences of the Steep Canyon Rangers and take it all the way back to the first generation pioneers of bluegrass. Uh, but, you know, I am I am of the belief that uh, just get as many people to listen as possible and play them the really good stuff. And uh, I think there's something in there that everybody can enjoy. But I think even when you're talking about bluegrass, there are different styles of bluegrass uh, from the very traditional sounds all the way to the more modern, contemporary, progressive sounds. And I think there's a place for all of it. Um, but I think if you look at bluegrass in particular as a tree, in order for the roots to stay healthy, you also have to let that tree grow and, and branch out. And I think as it branches out, um, it's keeping the roots healthy too because people do go back and uh, find some of the earlier stuff. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Um, we have a question from somebody, a, a viewer in the chat, Joseph Brask. Uh, He's he's curious if you can ex can you explain exactly what is meant by drive? Is drive something only found in up tempo songs? Uh, drive is a difficult. Like <laughs> 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 all right, you got music here going down the road, and you got one guy in the middle. You got one guy kind of hanging back, and that one guy be almost speeding. He he is the one that's got the drive. The other two guys are going the wrong way. He's, he is the man that with the drive, and it's just something you feel, and, you know, if you play with the band a lot, you you get good at doing little things that really help the, the speed of it. You're almost rushing the song, but you pull it back just enough. I know that's difficult. Playing on top of the beat. Yeah, or on top it, of the beat. Keeping yeah. it just a little bit not of a push. Not in the middle, not behind. Right on top of it. So. But don't you also think a slow song can have drive? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's not all about speed. It's more about feel. Yeah. It's hard to... Uh, it's hard to explain, but if you feel it, <laughs> would it if you would, feel it, you know you've got it. Uh, it would be kind of similar to like swing and jazz, you know. A similar sort of it's a it's a feel of the of the rhythm. It, it is a feel, um, and it's not about bearing down and playing hard or fast. But like Terry said, pushing it a bit on top of the beat. Yeah, just look at Earl or anything he plays. 
if you listen to him, he is leading that band and he is almost Russian, but he's not Russian. He, he <laughs> holds it down. He don't go past the, you know, he don't get a ticket for speed, man. That's, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I've also heard you say drive is your best friend. Timing is your best friend. Timing is your best friend. (laughs) (laughs) But the other one is your best friend. There you go. There you go. Because if you play, if you can't play in timing, you know, tap your foot or turn your metronome on, if you can't play with it, it's going to be a hard road for you because you'll never be that smooth like what you really want it to be, you know. So it's, uh, Mm -hmm. and, Unfortunately, either you got the timing or you don't. I mean, it's hard to teach that. You can practice with the metronome. That will help you more than anything. But it's nice not to have to do that. But depending on how hard a drive band you want to be, that would be the first place I would start. And everything I play, I would work and rehearse and rehearse right on, right on target, you know. So that's a good question. I ever get to answer, I'll send it in to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it almost could be like if you're surfing a wave, you know, you can't ride right on top of the wave. You get to just, uh, you're, you're riding just in the sweet spot, you know, and it just exactly. works. But if you're too far in front or too far behind, you're just going to fall down. Finding the sweet spot, that's drive. Somebody was asking what other, um, Terry, what other um, instruments do you play? You do play fiddle, I know, right? I played fiddle for a while, but it's been so long. I picked up a fiddle when Cindy was visiting friends down in Georgia. and I picked up his fiddle, and I couldn't. It sounded like a bunch of wild birds. (laughs) (laughs) I actually thought it sounded pretty good myself. He's his own worst critic. but I like to play rhythm guitar just sitting around with some young kids or something like that. Sandy, or we got a lot of friends. Are you calling me a young kid? (laughs) (laughs) I don't play bass. It hurts my hands. (laughs) So... But if I did, it would be set up where it was real low. I mean, I'd have to act like his banjo. Yeah, and he chops some rhythm on on mandolin. Uh, there's some live Boone Creek recordings, some board recordings from concerts, uh, like on Sweet Georgia Brown, where he's actually, uh, you know, chopping mandolin and Ricky's doing fiddle. And, and uh, actually, I played so. the old chop guitar style on that. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of things with strings on it. We'll put it that way. But banjo was my first love, so I always but And if I don't play every day, it seems like something's wrong. Like, <laughs> I don't like that feeling, so I try to play every day. And I feel really lucky to be, oh, washing dishes or, you know, in another room doing something and hearing the sound of Terry's banjo. Um, I think I'm really lucky to get to have that sound in the house. And, uh, you know, I've had people ask me before, Wives in particular, how do you stand it? How do you stand that banjo all day long? I'm like, I love the sound of a banjo. So um, I think I'm really lucky to get to experience it firsthand every day. Until she calls it that thing, get that thing. Kind of, <laughs> it was your mom, but that was not your wife. Door on there and watch Dr. <laughs> Phil and stuff like that. Well, I do, I do close the door sometimes if you get yeah. into those marathon jams. But uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> Usually I like it when you're gone somewhere and I got about half a day where I'm really constantly <laughs> <laughs> getting into getting into marital marital relations. <laughs> um, Dr. Phil. Yeah. Yeah. He, he thinks I watch too much Dr. Phil, but I learn things. <laughs> oh man. We have a question from Shannon O'Hare. She she has a question for for Terry. Over the years of playing, what is your favorite song to play and why? Ooh. Ooh. Uh, I don't know. Uh we cut a song with Doyle. Uh, Yellow River, it's a really fast thing up in the Key of E, and it was, it was a slow rock song. Yellow River. You know, and we really turned it on. And I played this song, Yellow River, with Boone Creek, and we used to do it. You know, we'd play like five nights a week for the month at the Holiday Inn, and we'd go to the Sheridan and play the same thing. Then we'd go, and Crow was doing the same thing. There's a lot of bluegrass there. And, uh, 
Yellow River. Yeah, Yellow River. I was trying to think. And Jay Christie. Yeah, the Christies. Okay, yeah, Jay Christie wrote the song, and somewhere I had a tape of it, and we heard it, said, I'd like to record that, and we were looking for material. And Dole said, we'll just do it. And then we kicked it off, man. It was just so cool. And it, Sam Bush played the fiddle on it. It fit it perfect. And uh, up to this point, that was, if not the most favorite song that I enjoyed playing, it was really, really close, you know. So Yeah. Uh, and I, of the few shows that Terry got to play last year, two of them were the original Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver and uh, they always did Yellow River yeah. in those sets. And uh, that's one that Terry loves so much. His own band worked it up to do on shows, too. So, And it is quite a driving number. And if any of the viewers have not heard that, you know, look that up. Stream it. Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, the original band in Yellow River. Sam Bush took a wicked fiddle break on yes, there. Yes, he did. And we were, and Sandy was in Japan uh, a few years ago. And Dr. Oda, he is a really promoter for bluegrass over there. And uh, he had his band and he come, he said, would you get up and play Yellow River with us? And I said, I would love to. I would totally love to. So I got geared up and he called me up and they sung Yellow River, you know, and played it. And I took the banjo break. And man, it was so much fun. And I could tell Dr. Oda loved it the most, didn't he? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when you think about a song that, you first recorded that bluegrass pickers in Japan are are learning and loving uh, halfway around the world. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty cool. And that's on YouTube as well. Yeah, uh, that you could look at the Yellow River, Japan, and see that band with you sitting in doing oh, yeah. that song. Yeah, uh, but, but yeah, that's a good one. We have a question for you, Cindy, from from a viewer, Maisa. She's asking, uh, what are the women who inf influenced you in the history of bluegrass in your career? Oh, wow. Um, there are a few, and I do appreciate those trailblazers. And I know even years ago, it was it was harder for women to blaze that trail, Um one that really comes to mind is Olabel Reed, simply because um, she was born and raised in the same county that I was, Ash County in North Carolina, the very northwest corner of North Carolina, bordering both Tennessee and Virginia. And when she moved up north with her brother Alex and became the house band at Sunset Park in Pennsylvania, and later started New River Ranch uh, around the Rising Sun, Maryland area. She uh, actually hired my dad as a banjo player, and he played with Ola Bell and Alex and the New River Boys from 1952 to 1960. And one year, Dad wanted to take, take us up north to visit Sunset Park and I was probably eight or nine years old. And we went to Ola Bell's house. And she told me then, she said, if you think you want to get into this music or entertainment in any way, just always be yourself. She said, people will always try to change you, but always be yourself and be what they're looking for. Don't turn yourself into what you think they're looking for. And it was wonderful advice and over the years in her hometown of Lansing, North Carolina, um, I got to participate a few times at Ola Bell Fest where they really honored her music. And because that was so much a part of my dad's early musical life to get to meet Ola Bell and uh, see the things that she was able to accomplish as an entertainer and as a songwriter High on a Mountain, I've Endured, just so many songs. Um, I would have to put Olabel Reed at the top of the list. So, thanks for answering that. And uh, thanks for thanks for asking, Maisa. Jamie, do we have other questions on the other chat lines? We're done. It's pretty quiet on the other chat lines today. I think everyone's engrossed, but I think we've got a few more minutes if uh, anybody would like to... Uh, to ask for sure. A lot of people are asking about different instruments and I think uh, Dave, uh, you caught most of the uh, 
questions in the chat, as far as I can tell. So. Well, Terry, I do have a question about, um, I'm curious about your singing. Do you practice your singing as well? And how'd you get to be, because uh, that is, it's, a, it's sometimes when you practice your, in, your as an instrumentalist so much, it can, the scene can be yeah. second, you know, kind of a, you know, something you kind of leave behind. Yeah, if we are uh, recording a song or something, I'll, I'll rehearse that quite a bit, keep it from going so, so long in the studio. I'll, you know, get the words down and get where my part is and then work on that. But I do rehearse that just exactly like I would play, and just over and over and over till you got it ingrained in your mind, and uh, saves you a lot of time. And then, of course, with a band rehearsal, getting the three or sometimes four part harmonies down, um, you know, it's just really important to uh, take just as much time on the vocals as you as you do instrumentally. So the young guys out there that plays well. Start working on your singing, man, because if you can sing, that really doubles or, or triples your chance of getting a good gig somewhere. True. That's good advice. Um, well, thank you very much uh, for being here. Would you all like to play another tune if we don't have any other questions coming in, in the chat? Yeah, that was great. There, there was one question that Dave, that we'd written down actually earlier on today. I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to. I'm going to ask it because I think I think it's a good one. Um, the I think you know Dave and I were chatting about the the number of kind of bluegrass uh, bands that maybe we wouldn't consider bluegrass in the true definition or categorization of, shall we say? Um, can you 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 guys are like you're the power couple of bluegrass. So what is the how would you define Bluegrass, and at what point does it step outside of of that that realm? Um, and I think the follow up to that is how important do you think those categorizations are when we're talking about styles of music? Well, you know, to identify a genre, it has its importance, but to us personally, good music is good music, and. Yeah. You know, if we could just define music as good and bad, that would be that would be cool. And we like all different styles of music. Terry's been asked before who one of his favorite singers is, and and he will immediately say Freddie Mercury. He's a oh, wow. fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Leon Redbone, oh, yeah. Merle Haggard. We listen to a lot of different styles, and. I really don't like to get into strict definitions because my definition of bluegrass might be different from yours or from David's or from someone I meet on the street. Uh, but some people really like to have that, you know, unless it includes these instruments mm -hmm. and unless it's played in this style, but you know, Bill Monroe did create that style of music. And I think especially when Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs came into Monroe's band, it really defined a sound that, you know, when Uncle Josh joined uh, the Foggy Mountain Boys, Bill Monroe was not a Dobro fan. And so, you know, I guess that was the first maybe crossing the line into what someone might consider not a bluegrass instrument, but I just read an article yesterday on bluegrasstoday.com about a band that's incorporating horns into their bluegrass sound. Mm. And over the years, Monroe would have um, accordion or chimes, just a lot of different things. I think um, a tuba would be fine. Yeah, a tuba. <laughs> well, and you know, uh, Merle Fest, oh, at Merle Fest, we saw, uh, we saw Dale do uh, uh, with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band and uh, the tuba player, uh, you know, playing bass with uh, with Rob McCurry's banjo. I mean, it was it was yeah. a really cool sound. So I think there can be a bluegrass style that incorporates different instruments. And to me, that's just another way of being inclusive and getting more people interested in the sound and 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 the banjo yeah you know, ultimately isn't it all about the banjo it is all about the banjo and i think the idea of, of merging tuba 
Like brass grass? Can we do brass grass? Is that a thing? There is actually, I've actually been in a band called, <laughs> with, called I don't, these, Do you not see how I segued that so beautifully? <laughs> <laughs> well, this grass, last tune, uh, it's another one that Terry wrote, and um, this was the 2001 um, instrumental recording of the year called Knee Deep in Bluegrass, hence the name of my bluegrass show. Yes, and he is. wrote the song before I had a nationally syndicated show, but I thought, wow, that would be a cool radio show name and it makes a cool theme song so um, here it is Terry Bauckham's Knee Deep in Bluegrass